It shouldn't matter what religion you are, whatever works, if it works to increase human flourishing of more people in more places, then I'm for it. So joining us on today's show is Michael Shermer. Michael is the founder of Skeptic Magazine. He's also the author of a couple of books, which I'll introduce in just a second. I'm really excited to talk to him. But before we get to any of that, first, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Stamps.com. So these days, you can get practically everything on demand. Like our podcast, listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you. With Stamps.com, you can access all the great services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You buy, you print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer. And the mail carrier picks it up, you just click, print, mail, you're done. It couldn't be easier. We use it here at the Daily Wire offices. I use it at my home. If I don't want to go to the post office because I'm busy that day, well, this is what Stamps.com is for. And right now, use promo code BENGUEST for this special offer. It includes up to 55 bucks of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in Ben Guest because we have a guest. That's stamps.com. Enter promo code Ben Guest again. You get that special deal, that $55 of free postage. It's, it's just awesome. And all the services are fantastic. It's 9 o'clock at night. The post office is closed. You still need stamps. That's what stamps.com is there for. Stamps.com. Enter that promo code Ben Guest for that special deal. Stamps.com. Promo code Ben Guest. Okay. Well, Michael Shermer, thanks so much for coming on the show. First, I want to pump your books a little bit because they are both fantastic. These are the two most recent. You've written more than this, but these are the two most recent. Uh, the Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Led Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom. And this one, which just came out and was favorably reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation, Michael, because I know there's a lot that we disagree on. I think people are going to be shocked to find there's a lot that we actually agree on as well. Michael is uh, probably one of the foremost atheists in, in America, if not the world. Uh, and obviously, I wear the funny Jew hat. So we have a lot to get to. So, <laughs> yes. so thanks, thanks for stopping Although by. Although I, really I don't like to it. define myself as uh, by being an atheist because that isn't anything. You know, being an atheist, <laughs> there's no like set of doctrines that this is what we believe in. We simply just don't believe in God full stop. Really, I'm a humanist or enlightenment humanist or secular humanist or something like that, or I'm a classical liberal. So here are the things I do believe. Uh, defining yourself by what you don't believe, I think it was Hayek who said, you know, just defining yourself as an anti-communist is not enough. Yep. What What are we for? Right. So I think points of agreement might be something like we're in, we're in favor of reason and logic and empiricism and things like that. Then we can find some common ground. Perfect. So let, let's yeah. start with that. So you, you call yourself now a classical liberal. Can you give me sort of the story of your your political development? I mean, were you always in line with with classical liberalism? Um, well, I went to Pepperdine University for undergraduate. Uh, I was a member of the first graduating class of the Malibu campus. And it was a great, great experience. 1970s, everybody's reading Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged on campus. I mean, really, everyone's walking around with this doorstop of a book. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I just can't get through the first 100 pages. If you get through the first 100 pages, you're in. You know, of course I did. And, and you know, so I think the way it works, though, is if the philosophy gels with your temperament, your personality, then, then you're more likely to adopt it. So in my case, just the way I was raised and by genetics or whatever, I, 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 I like being an individual. I like autonomy. I like... Uh, you know, sort of taking personal responsibility for your actions. To me, it's uplifting. You mean I can actually do something about my situation? Yeah, you can. Okay, I'm going to go do that. Uh, and so I think it gelled with me in that. And so, okay, what is that? Well, libertarian. You know, in the 70s, that was sort of Murray Rothbard and Reason Magazine was just getting going. It's like, all right. Uh, but as I got older and and the libertarian party or party and small L libertarian started to adopt more of the fringe 
elements of society. It's like, Ooh, I don't, you know, I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be associated with this guy or that movement or the people in Idaho. And bleh. you know, so I, I sort the of people just, dancing naked with the iron crosses it, it, on their bellies. Yeah, the you get the you, yeah. you, you get sort of the the pornography, pot smoking libertarians. I just want to move to Idaho and be by myself. <laughs> then you get the constitutional libertarians and. All right, so uh, I recently just, uh, I think I'll try a different label. Uh, I'd rather not use any labels, you know, uh, but it's a shortcut for thinking that we all use. So, okay, classical liberalism, you know, focus on the individual as the primary moral agent. That should be our concern. The, you know, the, the, the human flourishing is our, our moral concern, but flourishing of what? You know, not, tri not groups, not tribes, not races. You know, races don't vote, genders don't vote. Um, and, you know, religions don't vote or protect, you know, it's in individual. So I start there that, you know, even though there's something like a, a, an illusion of the self, I think there is a self inside my skin, inside my skull that we can call a, an individual unit that can suffer. Not just think, or like Bentham said, not just think and talk, but are you able to suffer? And if you can, that should at least be our starting point. What can we do to reduce suffering so of the individual? So there's a, there's a ton of us to, of this to unpack because yeah. there's a lot in that basic thesis, that philosophical thesis. But I, before we get to the actual unpacking of, of your philosophy, I want to discuss for a second the fact that we find ourselves in the same room. Because one of the things that's been very weird, obviously, is that we've now both been labeled members of the intellectual dark web <laughs> by Eric right. Weinstein uh, and Barry Weiss in the New York Times. And how did we find ourselves on the same side of the aisle? I mean, we obviously agree about a lot of the principles that you're speaking about, but it seems to me that there's an entire movement that's happening out there of thinkers from a variety of different backgrounds who suddenly have found themselves in common cause just because the left has become so focused on yeah, identity well, politics it, and unreason. It's, it's, you know, this is a driving for, you know, just, it's just gone too far. <laughs> um, you know, and we know from uh, polling data that the, the center is getting smaller in the left and right, uh, you know, two humps are getting larger and larger. It's a bimodal curve there. And, you know, in the 70s and so on, it, you know, the centrist was pretty large and now, you know, it's, it's getting smaller. So I think the further that, you know, each side goes, the more of us who are sort of on these two sides want to join together. And I think that's what something like this intellectual dark web. By the way, I thought that watch should be like the official watch of the intellectual dark web. <laughs> they should try that. And we can get you all some money. I mean, we'll, we'll talk with our sponsors. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure what it is other than those of us who think we should be able to talk about anything without hysteria, without the tears, without safe spaces, microaggressions, all that stuff, because it's the only way we can find out uh, what the truth is. If we've gone off the rails, uh, you know, every, every one of us is subject to all those cognitive biases we're familiar with. The only way to know is for us to talk, you know, and so I push a thesis or an idea and you go, hang on, Shermer, no, 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 that's not quite right. And then, then I can adjust and come back in a little bit. If you don't talk to anybody outside of your tribe, uh, then, 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 then you you can go down the rails to craziness, and that's just not good. So I think that's what unites us. And obviously, what, what you've spent an awful lot of time in your life doing is talking about reason and science. I mean, you're a monthly columnist for Scientific American. You're approaching the world record for monthly columns at one of these <laughs> major scientific publications. Uh, so let's let's go back to the philosophy now. So you're talking about human individualism and human individual thriving. Where does where do you get the basis for this as the basis of human society, the human individual? Because that's yeah. obviously a rather newfangled concept in in Western thought, as far as the Enlightenment. Yes. yes. Uh, so wh where is it that you know, I, I've always believed that human meaning has to come in the interaction between individual value and also communal purpose? That if you feel like you're by yourself all the time, you feel isolated, people need other people and people want to feel like they're part of something broader. Right. And that sometimes manifests in really ugly ways. How do we get to the point where the individual is the is the key component of morality? So for me, I just go back to, to Genesis and then I say individuals made in the image of God. But for you, because you're not a Bible believer, uh, where, where does that come from? 
Uh, to me, it, it really begins for the modern world in the rights revolutions of the 18th century. Just the idea that there are individuals who can have rights. Now, the idea that these are inalienable rights, they're self-evident, well, that, that, that's not terribly satisfying now because self-evident for you may not be self-evident for me, so we have to have some kind of argument. I began with, uh, with evolution, that is, we are evolved organisms who, as individuals, desire to be to, to um, uh, gather as many resources as we can. So I start with Dawkins' selfish gene. Now, don't read this by the title. By selfish, he just means the genes are just perpetrating themselves. Right? Yeah. Now, it could be that the most selfish thing I could do is hoard all the resources and kill you if you, if you try to compete with me. But uh, living in a, we're a social species, so living in a group, I can't be that way. Uh, oftentimes, the most selfish thing I can do is to be nice with you or, or form a coalition with you. Or you and I practice reciprocal altruism. I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. And so in this case, you, uh, I think we evolved a moral sense of caring about other people. Now, it's not enough for me to fake being a, a, a good person. Like, I really care about you, Ben. You and I are good friends. But the moment we walk out, I tell my buddy, yeah, that bastard, he's a no good. <laughs> You're going to know at some point, because we're fine-tuned to our, uh, our reputations, what other people think about us, and what these other people are really like. So we're looking for cues like this. Is Shermer genuine when he says he's my friend or is he just saying that and he's using me? And we're pretty good at, at discerning that, not perfect. So there's always gonna be maybe 10% freeloaders, bullies, free riders, people that are just gonna use the system. These are the psychopaths, sociopaths, and so on, the bullies of a society. And we know from research, like Christopher Bohm's research of, uh, of hunter-gatherer groups today, it's like that. It's like maybe five to 10% are, are, are people that don't play nice by the rules. And all these hunter-gatherer groups have a whole series of sanctions against the individuals who are not you know, cooperating. Anything from we gossip about you, we sit you down and have a little talk with you, we slap you around a little bit, or it, they actually practice capital punishment. They go out on a, uh, on a hunt on the weekend with, you know, Og, and they come back without Og. Right, and this is true for children, too. If you look at the experiments, I mean, you know this stuff better than I do, but if you look at the experiments with children uh, and, and even adults, they will seek to punish each other and forego pleasure in order to punish each right. other if they feel like right. people are violating the reciprocal rules. That's right. In these common goods games where we all put some money in the pot, if we, if, with transparency, we know who put what in, those who are cheating the system are holding a little bit back, uh, I will sacrifice some of my profit just to punish you. So we do have an evolved sense of right and wrong. I think we're born with it. You know, Paul Bloom's research with the little puppets in his developmental psych lab. And, you know, the, there's the good puppet that helps the other puppet mm -hmm. get the ball up the, and the nasty puppet that pushes the ball back down. And these little kids, that you know, they, have no, they don't even have language yet. You know, they'll go out and slap the bad puppet or not choose the bad puppet, reinforce the good puppet. So I think we're born with this uh, and, and we have to have it because a social group cannot survive if everybody's too selfish. So we have to evolve a sense of right and wrong and truly caring, whatever you want to call altruism or uh, sympathy, empathy, something. I actually do care about other people. So how does that evolve beyond the tribe? Because here's this is one of the great puzzles of human history is, number one, why this perspective on the human individual only arose in the 17th century. If this is ingrained in human beings, that the individual is of value and that we have to work with one another, then why only in a certain place in a certain time did it arise? You know, was it a spontaneous combustion of human thought in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries? Uh, or was this something that has deeper roots? I obviously would argue this has deeper roots going all the way back to Sinai yeah. and Athens. But you, how would you argue on that? Yeah, I, so I think it's, it's, there's a tension there always between the individual and the group. And then how do we get beyond the small tribes? Uh, tribal size of about 150 plus or minus right. a few dozen. 
uh, where everybody knows each other or related to each other. So evolutionary psych can get us all the way out to that. Now, beyond that, we need politics, economics, culture, history, and so on. Uh, and, and so the, the one model I use is, I, I call this the Indugu effect. So in uh, Jack Nicholson's movie about Schmidt, mm -hmm. you know, he's a retired insurance guy and, and, and he's late night watching and there's one of these infomercials about adopting a little kid, Indugu in this case, and he gives money to little Indugu and the whole narrative plot is around that. He doesn't know Indugu from anybody, but they show him the picture of little Indugu and here he is with his soccer ball and his brother and sister, and here's their little hut they live in and $5 a day will give them, and so on. And now if you show a picture of 10,000 starving kids in Kenya, I'm not giving any money or I'll give a dollar or whatever, but you show me little Indugu. So really that's kind of tricking our brain into making little Indugu an honorary member of our tribe, my mm -hmm. family, my friend. I care about it because, and that's our evolved brain. We care about people we know or can identify with. So. To get beyond that, first of all, you have to get people to care about other people by identifying them as individuals that are like me. So that sort of principle of interchangeable perspectives, that could be me there, but for the grace of, in your case, God, <laughs> uh, there, uh, that could be me. So, okay, so, uh, and so how do we do that? Well, beyond getting people to truly care, just having a large society with the rule of laws and, and democracy where we at least feel like we have some say, but more importantly, I think free trade is one of these things where uh, as long as you and I are both profiting from some kind of exchange we have, I, I have no desire to kill you, and maybe I'll even start to like you a little bit because you're doing something for me. So we know government, uh, you know, sort of liberal democracies and free trade are these things that um, provide trust in a society among strangers such that I can go to the Starbucks somebody waiting for me to wait on me. I don't know them. They take my money. They trust me. I trust them. I don't feel like I'm going to get bunked on the head uh, or uh, hopefully not arrested for not paying <laughs> buying a <laughs> Starbucks. Uh, you know, that, that, that modern society is based on this idea of trust among strangers, and that requires all these extra add-ons. So uh, here I think of, of economics and politics as tools, social technologies. Right, so, so my question still remains, okay, I... I agree with a lot of your analysis. Why the economics and politics of a particular time in a particular place? Is it accidental? Is it that there's, oh. we're just looking at a single sample size? And why is yeah. it that only in Western Europe at a particular time, at a particular place in history, do we get this vision of individual rights that flowers out and then starts encompassing broader and broader groups of people? Right. It, 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 if, again, if this was embedded in human capacity from the very beginning, then why does it only happen as the outgrowth of one particular culture? So yeah. you see where I'm going with yeah, this, right? Yeah, yeah, you, you yep, yep, yep. So, well, I think Pinker tries to answer that, and the, the good social scientist that he is, you know, this is a tangled web of, of correlations and, and, and intercausal variables that are going up and down, and it's, it's really hard to answer. I mean, you get a, a number of things going on, you know, the Industrial Revolution, free trade is coming, you know, double entry bookkeeping, and all these things that kind of drive prosperity to go up, which, which enhances a bunch of other things. So we can afford better governance and so on. Then we have better uh, educational systems. Also, literacy rates start to go up around Do you think any of this time. has to do with the, with the Judeo-Christian system that is undergirding yes, all Yes, well, okay, uh, yeah, so there, there is, yes, that's part of it, of course. Uh, and so th just the Western idea that uh, the Judeo-Christian is you know, sort of founding helps 
push it along. Yes, I know we can go back to maybe the 13th century or 14th century and, you know, the first humanists in the 15th century, long before the Enlightenment. Yes, okay, so there's strands. Right, Grotius is talking about human rights back in the 1530s, 1540s. Right. Yes, 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 right. So I think there's multiple strands. When you write a book, you got to start the clock right, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't go all the way back to Athens and Jerusalem, you know, like some people do. Okay, so there's some threads there. Uh, but the idea that um, the individual is what counts and we're going to protect the individual's rights you know, like the Bill of Rights, for example, is a perfect example of, of my, it's not the group, it's the individual. Mm -hmm. In fact, these rights are there to protect you from being considered a member of a, a group that we feel we can discriminate. No, you can't do that. And that, those have been expanding. That moral sphere has been expanding more and more. Yeah, no question. And I, I think that this is where we all end up in the same place. It's, it's really quite fascinating. Again, I've had conversations with you know, you and Sam Harris, and we're coming at it from a completely different angle as far as the impact of God and all of this. Jonah Goldberg suggests that this is the miracle. Uh, and one of my great objections to Jonah Goldberg's terminology in that is that I'm not sure that the miracle happened in 1650. I think the miracle happened a lot earlier and that that was the enzyme, the catalyst that led to this yeah. great outpouring of human freedom. But we end up in the same place. So the question becomes, how do we argue for that? Because we actually do agree on a lot of these same values, even if we think the source of those values is different, right? I yeah. think the source of those values begins much earlier. I think that it is embedded in certain biblical principles that are that are evaluated and reasoned through over time. Um, but how do we espouse those? So for, for me, I can espouse those values uh, in, in a particular way, starting from the premise that there's a certain absolute morality that was established by God. This is where the God question comes in. And so I'm wondering, without that absolute morality, where, how do we get to that point where we can convince people? And I'll let you answer the question, but first, 60-hour work weeks, traffic, neck pain, back pain, stress at home, you are the reason they invented the spa, but you have no time to go to the spa. Introducing Zeal, the most trusted name in massage, and the best way to get a same-day five-star massage in as little as an hour, because they come to you. Just go to zeal.com or use the Zeal app and choose your favorite technique, gender preference, time, location for your massage, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Within an hour, one of the top local licensed pre-screened massage therapists from Zeal's network of over 10,000 massage therapists can actually be at your door with the massage table and the music and the supplies. Plus, for companies who really value their teams, Zeal also offers on-site chair massages for companies of any size. You can try Zeal today, like today. Go to zeal.com or the Zeal app and use promo code Shapiro to get 20 bucks off your first massage. That's $20 off your first massage with promo code Shapiro. Zeal, spelled Z-E-E-L, Dot com, promo code Shapiro. Okay, so back to that really big question that I just posed to you. So Wait, you said something about, I'm going to die? What? <laughs> <laughs> so, see, I, I don't have to fear it quite as much. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that too, because obviously you have, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about big issues like life and death in just a second, because yeah, this yeah, your entire yeah, book yeah, on yeah. what heaven constitutes But, 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 but is really on the God question, okay, like, yes. well, like, like, I just started reading Jonah's uh, new book, The Suicide of the West, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. a weird title, because it's, it's much much more of an uplift, at least the first half is very uplifting. Right. The miracle. Well, you didn't get to the bad, the downside yet. Oh, okay, I haven't gotten there yet. Well, but his first page, he says, there's no, the first there's words, no God, there's no God in this there's book. There's no right. God in this book. And, and I'm only going to use reason to argue for these principles. Perfect. And the reason that to me is good, not just because I'm an atheist, but that it, doesn't, it shouldn't matter what religion you are, or in, in a sense, it doesn't really matter what the uh, roots are, although, although it's intellectually interesting, whatever works, if it works to increase human flourishing of more people in more places, then I'm for it. And, and, and we should champion those and make reasonable arguments for why they're working. And full stop, that's all we need to do. So where do you and I get our morals from? How do you know what's right or wrong? I, I tend to think we probably both get it from the same place. That is the still small voice within, and then our culture, our parents, our traditions, and so on. But where did those come from? And at some point, if you go far 
back far enough, you're going to, I think, argue there's a supernatural intervention into the system that says this is what's right or wrong. But my question would be, how do you know? Because we know from biblical scholars that the Bible is something of a wiki. It's an edited volume. We know mm-hmm. people wrote it down, and you say, well, maybe God inspired their writings or words or something. But if we just take something like, is killing wrong? Or, well, we wouldn't ask, is murder wrong? It, right. Because murder, by definition, is wrong. But killing is wrong. Well, it depends. And, and so h- how do you know? And so this is, as you know, Euthyphro's dilemma that if, you know, if these moral principles are out there in some kind of you know, platonic space floating right. around up there, uh, are they right or wrong because God said so, or are there reasons? And, and if we have reasons for why it's right or then wrong, then what do you need God for? Right? You just skip the middleman and just go straight for the reasons. So I actually disagree with. I know I've, I watched your d- debate with uh, interview slash debate with Dennis Prager uh, and on Dave Rubin's show specifically about this. I'm not somebody who disagrees that you can intuit that murder is wrong just without without the presence of God. In fact, Judaism basically says that. Uh, Judaism essentially says that there are certain principles where if you were born in a wilderness, you would still be held accountable for failing to abide by those principles, and those do include murder, right? So murder is wrong whether you believe in God, whether you were born in a barn, it doesn't matter, right? There, right. These, there are certain things you can intuit. But some of the higher order morality that we're talking about, the value of individuals, or how far you extend the tribe, right. Right? I'm not sure that that stuff can be done simply through, through pure reason. Uh, I'm skeptical of that specifically because I think that what we tend to do in the West is we tend to say everything that was good was Enlightenment thinking and everything that was bad was counter-Enlightenment yeah, thinking. So this yeah. is my, my criticism of Stephen Pinker's okay. new book on the Enlightenment, okay. is that what Stephen does is he, he writes you know, a 450-page book about the Enlightenment and never mentions the French Revolution. Right? It, he writes a 450-page book about the Enlightenment, and he never recognizes that Rousseau was a member of the Enlightenment caste. He, was not, right, he didn't call himself right, counter-Enlightenment. Right. It, that, that the French Revolution was happening at the same time as the American Revolution, essentially, in the broad scheme right. of things. That there's a whole line of thought, including communism and Nazism, that considered itself uber-rational. Right? If, right. You actually, if you actually look back to the foundations of, of Marx, Marx is talking about imposing the reason of humanity on the economic system as a whole. So right. pure reason, I'm not sure can get you there, is the, is yeah. the argument that I'm yeah. making. Yeah. Well, okay, first of all, the French Revolution, in The Better Angels, uh, Steve talks about um, uh, Burke and, and Burkean conservatism. Right. And Burke was in favor of the American Revolution against the French right. Revolution. Why? Because in the American Revolution, you had a balance between we want to overthrow the systems that are not working, but retain the ones that are still good. Uh, because those are long, hard-fought traditions that work pretty well. Now, unfortunately, slavery got thrown in there, but we eventually <laughs> got rid of that. The French Revolution was like, let, let, let's just blow the whole thing up and start over with, including a new Tabula calendar. Rosa. I mean, yeah. but, they, but, yeah. it was, but they did actually have a cult of reason, right? I mean, they actually yeah, like, so, took okay, the, the right, Notre Dame right. Cathedral and they actually put an idol to reason in the Notre right. Dame Cathedral, and they had a cult of it. Uh, so, so I guess my contention is that if you're going to make the argument that it's self-evident, that these principles eventually are self-evident, I don't think in the absence of the... The, the Burkean argument is, in essence, a religious argument. It's there was a bunch of stuff that was passed down to us by our forebears, and we have the capacity through reason to evaluate whether we still think that the evidence is on the side of particular rules or whether these rules have been misapplied. Right. But you have to acknowledge the value of what has been handed down as opposed to the tabula rasa reason, which might be mandated by the almost uh, by the social science approach that is now being taken up by a lot of folks, people with whom I have great discussions. But whenever I read Sam Harris's books and he says that, you know, throw religion out the window and we can come up with better than that. I, as I said to him when I was talking to him, well, you grew up five miles from me and we share a lot of the same principles. So I'm happy to have that discussion with you. But if you'd grown up in a society that had a different tradition, I have a feeling you'd be arguing something very different and so right, would I. Right. 
Okay, so two things. One, uh, I, I think uh, Pinker makes the point that most of these are uh, counter-enlightenment romanticist traditions, the blood and soil of the Nazis, for example, that it's, it's, it's the, you know, the race that counts and so on. That, now, you may make rational arguments about that and say, I'm using reason, but your reasoning is wrong. And so we can, we can, we can say we're both using reason and, and this, uh, these arguments are better than those arguments. So I think those are the two points about that. Uh, sorry, to, to just, I don't want to interrupt, but, but I think that the question there about the misuse of reason would be this. Is that you are, your pattern of reasoning is wrong or that your premises are wrong? Because if your premises, think, are, right, so yeah. if, you, if, you, if your pattern of reasoning is wrong, then we can all spot the flaw in the reasoning and we can say, okay, here's where you went wrong. But if the premises were wrong, then we're back into my argument, which is that the culture you inherit is a deeply impactful thing on whether you believe in individual rights in the first place. So I guess what I'm trying to get you to, yeah. uh, and maybe I'm trying to argue you into it, uh, is acknowledging that Judeo-Christian values are at the very least utilitarian. Even if you don't agree with the source of them, you agree that the, the legacy that begins you know, with Judaism and through Christianity in the Christian world, that is, a, that is a necessary, not a contingent part of history. Maybe, but how do you deal with then all the bad side of the, the Judeo-Christian tradition before the Enlightenment? Right. You know, the Inquisition, the witch hunts. So the, so the way that, that I deal with that is, yeah. is what I say is that the, the Bible was given to a specific group of people. If I were to give you a written document right now, I'd have to speak the language that you and I were speaking. I couldn't use terminology that you didn't know. I couldn't give you rules that were so deeply radical that they would run counter to anything that you could possibly believe. So, for example, when Maimonides talks about sacrifices, you know, the, these animal sacrifices that seem really barbaric to us now, what Maimonides is arguing in the 12th century is CE, right, about a document written presumably by Jewish tradition 2,000 years earlier, is he's arguing that if you're going to try and convince people away from sacrifice, you have to first change the nature of the sacrifice. You can't just abolish something that people think uh, is completely dependent and, and necessary. And then over the course of time, there are certain parts of the Bible that speak to eternal human nature, right? So, for example, this is what Judaism and Christianity would say is true about sexual matters, is that human beings are the same regardless of where they are. They always have the same sexual nature. That is unchanging. But what is changing is the necessity to slaughter animals, for example, or what is what, what is changing is the evidence basis for witness testimony. Yeah. Right. It, Do you mean like when Jefferson said all men are created equal, but he has slaves, and, but and, and, and he, by today's standards, well, he's a racist, but really he's just trying to get something done and you can't have everything. So he's saying, look, we have to use what we have now and we could try to change I, it later. I, essentially, So yes. to me, it feels like uh, modern thinkers looking back at ancient texts saying, well, when Jesus said this in you know, Mark 3, 27, he really meant women should have the vote. Well, wow. I mean, <laughs> you're getting this out of that passage. You know, it's a, I think we're reading back into it, a lot of it. Um, uh, I think that you can, you, you can find traditions. Like, to me, that this principle of interchangeable perspectives, that is, uh, if we're going to set up a society, I can't know which group I'm going to be in, the Rawlsian veil of ignorance. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I, as an individual, can't convince you to treat me nice just because I'm me and you're not me. And, and I have a privileged position just because I'm me. No. So the golden rule is really that. And it's metallic derivatives, as, as Pinker calls them. Uh, and, I, and I like that idea because I think that is basic. That, that's, the basis of that is in this kind of evolutionary model of uh, myself as genes drive me to just want to hoard all the resources, but you're making the same calculation. So we have to come to kind of some agreement. One way to do that is for me to put myself in your position. How would I feel if I were Ben and, and I was doing this to him? Well, okay, I would feel bad. 
So I think religions discovered certain eternal truths about human nature long before there was, you know, the Enlightenment or, mm -hmm. or, or modern Western culture at all. Uh, I don't know how they, you know, maybe by accident or just trial and error, at, at some point you're going to figure out. Or maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> well, but, but by observation. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the point Jordan Peterson makes about novelists having deep insights into uh, human nature. I think that's right. And there's a whole uh, branch of evolutionary psych that does evolutionary literature. Like when Shakespeare or Jane Austen write about their characters, they're really getting it right about how people behave, their sexual nature, uh, power structures, hierarchy, the kinds of things that drive conflict in human relationships. They figured it out long before there was anything even called psychology. How did they do that? By observing, by paying attention. So I, 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 I do think religions get it right a lot of the time just because they're 2,000 years of, 4,000 years of observations that get written down. And then what we do is go back and pick and choose the ones that seem right, and and the other ones like capital punishment for, you know, X, Y, and Z. We don't we don't practice that anymore. We've rejected those. We accept these, based on what? Based on modern standards. Like these are good arguments, so we'll use those and emphasize those to the flock. Okay, good. Um, that's fine. Okay, so so I, I want to talk a little bit now uh, about the the arguments that you make with regard to free will, because you're, you're libertarian politically, uh, or at least classical liberal politically. You don't want the government in anybody's business. And that presupposes a certain level of responsibility among yes, individual yes, actors, yeah. because obviously you do something and now you're responsible for the thing that you did. You have the choice to make, um, but you have a, a kind of interesting view of free will. So I am a free will, as a religious person, I'm a free will absolutist in the sense that I believe that I don't know how it happens, but I don't think that if you had a giant God machine, right? And the giant God machine had all the information of the universe programmed into it that you could predict how I'm going to, the next sentence I'm going to say to you. Right. right? That, that I think that I have the capacity as an individual actor to, That's there's something right. outside the system, in other words, that allows me to make, to subsume my biology and, and say something different and think something different. I'm an individual. So you, in, in your scientific view, there are a couple things that you do that seem to cut against libertarianism. And now I, I just want to know how you, how you uh, rectify the breach. So one is that you, you've suggested before that there is such a thing as a self, but there really kind of is not such a thing as the self. That basically are a bunch of firing synapses that identifies as the self. Right. Um, so without a self and without the capacity to make a free decision, every decision that you make is determined, predetermined. How do you, how do you get to a libertarian political position? Yeah. Or even just uh, a libertarian free will position. Right. The modified version of that is called compatibilism. Uh, in a survey I like to cite from 2009 of 3,500 professional philosophers and graduate students and so on, 59% uh, were called themselves compatibilists. Uh, very few are in the sort of pure free will, like there's a little homunculus in there pulling the levers, uh, and the rest are determinists, say, along the lines of the arguments that Sam Harris makes. So um, Dan Dennett is, I think, makes the best arguments for these, which is that, first, we are... Um, we are determined. I mean, we live in a determined universe. There's cause and effect. This is what scientists do when they study things, except for quantum physics, which wouldn't give you, quantum uncertainty doesn't give you free will. It's just uh, uncertainty, right? It's uncertainty, chaos. yeah. That is, uh, but, but, but in other words, that, that position is if there were a full God machine, you would still be, you would be able to tell me yeah, the next sentence right, I'm going to say. Right, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but uh, first, we can never, we're, we're not God machines. We can never know that. Second, we are active agents within the causal net. So you have this causal net, the universe, all these things operating. Uh, but but we can actually change the variables as we go, as the pathway unfolds. We can push back. We can stop smoking. We can go on a diet. We can, uh, you know. And, so I'm gonna, I want to ask you for clarification on that. But first, sorry, I have to take a break for for lending club. So we know we need a helping hand sometimes, whether it's unexpected repairs, medical expenses, credit card debt. 
Sometimes a little money can make a big difference, and you can get it at LendingClub.com. So LendingClub gives you access to low rates on loans of up to 40 grand for almost any purpose. Take control of your debt, finance a major purchase, finally make those home improvements. It's easier than going to a bank. It offers lower rates than high-interest credit cards. It's a really good option. Just go to LendingClub.com and enter how much money you need and see if you're approved in minutes. And then you can pick the offer that is right for you. The money can be in your account in just a matter of days. It's that simple. For more than 10 years, Lending Club has helped millions of people with over $31 billion in loans. Take charge of your finances today with Lending Club. Go to LendingClub.com slash Ben Guest to check your rate for free. It won't impact your credit score, which is pretty cool. LendingClub.com slash Ben Guest, because I have a guest. LendingClub.com slash Ben Guest. All loans made by WebBank member FDIC equal housing lender. So I interrupt you right in the middle of the stream of thought, which is <laughs> the worst thing to do. But where you were, where you left off, was you were talking about we have the capacity to kind of, we still have the capacity to change things. We can still go on a diet. We can still... So how that's a lot of active verbs. I said yep. it's yeah, a lot yep, of active right. verbs yes, for, so, for so what is a passive phenomenon. The concept presumably. is that Dan Dennett uses a degrees of freedom. That is, within a mechanical system, you have degrees of freedom of how much it can move around. In, a, in organisms, say cockroaches have fewer degrees of freedom than, than the dog. The dog has fewer degrees of freedom than the chimp, and the chimp far fewer than humans. So, and even within human groups, we, the law already takes into account the fact that, say, uh, you know, murder in an act of rage, or you were on a, you know, you were drugged up, or, uh, or somebody held a gun to your head, or something like that. We, we say, well, that's different than me freely choosing. Well, what's the difference? Or what's the difference between, say, the oxycontin uh, cotton addict and me? Uh, I'm not an addict. Or my father was an alcoholic, for example. He just could not stop drinking, and I'm not. I just didn't get the genes. Okay, so I have more degrees of freedom than he had, and I'm willing to cut, say, the alcoholic or the drug addict some slack that he's not choosing like I could choose. So if I actually get drunk and kill somebody, I should be more held more accountable than, say, the alcoholic who just can't control himself, although there should be always punishment there. But anyway, that's the idea, that that um, the more degrees of freedom you have, the fact that you can never know all the causal variables anyway, we feel like we are free in the same way we feel we are a self. And if, if you want to call it, a, you know, Sam calls that an illusion. Okay, it's a great illusion. It's one of my favorite <laughs> illusions. <laughs> it's the one that makes life fun, interesting. But, it, but yeah, I think that the, the, the reason that, um, so essentially you're redefining free will to mean free of outside or interior compulsion. Meaning that it's not that you are free to make any decision that you want to. It's right. that you are free of somebody putting a gun to your head or you are free of a genetic factor that forces you to do X. I'm not presumably. free to be an NBA player. Okay, Right. So I mean, there's certain constraints. You're constrained. Yeah, we're all constrained. But within the channels that we're going down through life, they're, they're wider than I think most of us so, intuitively think and that you can actually tweak the variables. So the, so the, so the compatibilism that you're talking about sounds a lot like you agree with Sam on principle, but you agree with me in action. That's right. So, so the and this is this is what's kind of fascinating is that you know for people who are arguing the strong non-compatibilist position, right? For people who are arguing the strong determinist position, uh, you end up in this weird place where you wonder why you're doing what you're doing all the time because. But, Obviously, but, but, was, but people, they don't. Sam doesn't walk around going, well, I wonder where he's going. This is what I asked left. Sam, and he didn't really, yeah. <laughs> like, I'll he ask him again he, when he comes on. He, but yeah. uh, to me, all determinists are pragmatic compatibilists. No one walks around going, well, I wonder where he's going next. And I, think, right. uh, and I think all compatibilists are disguised absolutists because in the end, <laughs> there's what they believe is true, and then they're acting completely opposite of that because if you believed everything was determined, yeah, then you'd sit yeah. around navel-gazing all day, presumably. Yeah, that, that's right. And by the way, the, the social science tends to demonstrate this, that when you tell kids that they have so many constraints on them, yes, that, that, that they, that they uh, yeah. can't get anything done, right? This right. is why victim ideology is really right. a problem, right? Victim, right? victimhood mentality. You tell a bunch of kids, society is constraining you, there's vague racism out there, there's vague institutes that are, the institutions 
institutions that are trying to connect. No, it's terrible. It, it, it kills terrible. them, right? It right. destroys them right. as human right. beings. Uh, and it's a learned helplessness. They well, go, well, what's the point of trying? Right, exactly. Which so is it, why I think the determinist position is not good uh, to, to practice or uh, preach because no one, or teach, no one actually lives their life that way. Right, I'm, I'm not sure you can teach a child this. It was really interesting. This is, you know, the, the, the determinist position. Uh, there is, when, when I was talking to Sam uh, and on his podcast, we did a, a thing in uh, San Francisco. And the best part of the evening was a woman got up and she said, I totally agree with you, Sam, about determinism, but I have a seven-year-old kid. You know, what do I teach my seven-year-old kid? I heard that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and it, was it, it was pretty amusing. It was pretty interesting yeah. because this is one of the big questions is what do you teach your kids right. uh, if you feel that the science is not in confluence with how they should actually act or, yeah. or, or move. And the same thing holds true for the self. So I want to get your view of the self and yeah. then we can move further in yeah. this direction. So I just want one more point. Sure. Yes, social, social psychologists and, and, and clinical psychologists talk about uh, learning self-control, willpower. Uh, and we know now there's a lot of research on, you know, the marshmallow experiment. You right. Know, you just, but you I've can tried actually, it on my daughter. I'm you, that kind you, of person. You can train yourself. I mean, just knowing, okay, I know if I can resist for 15 more minutes, then I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do it. And you can do that. You, you can just by, so that's an example of you actively throwing yourself into the causal net saying, I am going to tweak the variables. Uh, and you know I'm going to I'm going to set my alarm for six, and I'm going to have my running clothes already out because I know if I don't, then I'm less likely to get up or whatever. So just knowing that, so we're different than all the other animals, I think, in the sense we're self-aware of the causal vectors influencing us, and then we can change them. Call it what you want. To me, that's a kind of free will or or willpower. Use the active verbs. I'm good with active verbs yeah. because that is what we do. But we that's a, it's a, but it's essentially a faith-based argument. You have faith in yourself that you're capable of acting, even though in reality you may be just a bunch of neurons firing based on stuff that happened several trillion years ago. I probably wouldn't use the word faith, but um, you know we, we bump up. Well, I know against, that's not allowed, but <laughs> we, we bump up against these uh, language walls. I mean, this mm -hmm. is part of the problem with talking about uh, God, free will, and consciousness. You know, we use these words, and it's really hard to find them carefully enough to get an answer. So like the consciousness one, for example, this so-called hard problem of consciousness, uh, where what it's like, what, what is it like to be you, Ben? Is your red same as my red? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, we got to work on this problem. This is an insoluble problem because I can never be in your head. I can't know what it's like to be a bat, Thomas Nagel's famous thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Because to do that, I'd have to bolt on some wings and the muscles and the neurons. Although according to modern scientists, you can't know what it's like to be a woman and you can claim you are one. But that's, 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 <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah, okay, maybe if you do the surgery and the hormones, but even that's just sort of bumping you closer and closer to that. But if we really did it, all the way, you would just no longer be a man or a human wondering what it's like to be a bat. You'd just be a bat going, well, I'm a bat. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't be thinking. Right. So so like in Kafka's uh, The Metamorphosis, mm -hmm. where the salesman wakes up and he's like, whatever, he is a cockroach or something. Uh, you know, that can't happen. You would just be the cockroach. You wouldn't be walking around going, oh, this is what it looks like to be a cockroach. You know. So uh, that to me is one of the, these are called mysterian mysteries. They can never be solved. So that free will, we use these words, determinant of free will, they're by definition in conflict. How can you resolve them? I, we just tried. It's not perfect. And God, the last one, I think, if you mean by God a, a supernatural agent outside of space and time, well then by definition we can never know that because right. we're in space It's and not time. falsifiable. No, not falsifiable. So if you mean like a super advanced extraterrestrial intelligence that we can meet one day and go, oh, so you have the power to actually do, even like telekinesis or something, you know, this could be done with computer chips in the brain, it's already done, and so on. But that's a natural agent. And I think by God, I'm, I'm we, I've never, yeah. we've never talked about this, but you probably mean a super outside of space. Yeah, and the time, classical right? definition. Correct. Right, right. Yeah. So how would you know?
And I and the answer is you don't, right? Which you is don't. why okay. you're a believer, not a knower, okay. typically. Okay. Right? All right. You, you can I can I can know what, what I've said before is I know in God, meaning that there are certain premises that I use for my politics and my values in my daily life that I believe spring from the principle that there is an intelligent being that exists outside space and time and that has created a system that is knowable by us, an objective truth that is discoverable by, uh, discoverable by us, and a universe that is uh, understandable to a large degree by us. Uh, and that's not falsifiable, but it's, right, it's, it's right. no less falsifiable, no less unfalsifiable than the theory of multiple universes because we can never get outside our universe. So there's no way for us to know whether right. we're a bubble on top of a bubble right, or right, whether we right. are specifically designed as a, as a unique place for life, right? This is, this is one of the, the arguments that's being made now, and it's why you know, Stephen Hawking was so attached to the idea of multiple universes right. is because that, that weird problem that we exist, which is a very statistically non-probable event, uh, the, the, the way of getting around that is by saying, well, yeah, we're just that series of nines in pi, basically, that when you do 3.14, <laughs> right. you go far out enough, you get 60 instances of nine in a row. Right. And, the, and so we say, well, right, because pi is sort of randomized beyond a certain point. Well, but there's no way to know that because now you're positing a thing that we cannot falsify to, dis to debunk another thing we cannot falsify. Right. Yeah, where's the lever, the Archimedean lever to stand outside? We can't. Okay, now my, my physicist friends tell me that the multiverse is a derivative of their models predicting that that would be the case. Now, I'm, I, this is out of my... Right, mine out. too. So I'd, I'd have to bring in uh, uh, but, but, but Brian it, Keating or something. So the question is, when we bump up against these, these grand mysteries, what do you do with them? To me, it's okay to just say, you know what? I don't know. Uh, I, like with the, with the heavens on earth, is there an afterlife? I don't know. Now, so you're an agnostic, not an atheist. Well, in the sense that Huxley meant it when he coined that word in 1869, unknowable. Right. I think the God, free will, consciousness, as they're phrased, they're unknowable. So they're outside of science. Now, mm -hmm. we can talk about them and use reason or whatever, but I think we're going to bump up against the wall there. So I was curious, by the way, that the, you know, the ancient Jews, the, the shoal, and you don't go anywhere after your, your death, right? Yeah, the, the idea of the afterlife is, uh, is a pretty modern invention in Judaism. Yeah. It really, it really yeah. only crops up historically speaking, a little bit in the prophets, and it's usually the late prophets. Right. And it's and it's really maybe as a response to early Christianity or, or right. Greek thought. So yeah, in the, in the Bible itself, there's no reference, in the Torah, there's no right. reference to the afterlife so what, what, what do you all. think happens after the death of your body? So, I mean, I only have suspicion, because again, uh, unverifiable. My suspicion is that if there, if there is a God, which I believe, uh, who exists outside of time and space, and that what animates me is that I'm made in the image of God, and that what animates my capacity is that I'm made in the image of God, that I reunify with God. That basically, there is a, the, the traditional Jewish take on this has been that there's a cleansing process. Judaism doesn't believe in eternal hell. So it's instead this idea that there's a cleansing process for your, for your soul, the part that you got from God, that spark of life that you got from God, You've schmutzed it, schmutzed it up while you're alive, <laughs> and now there's a cleansing process, and then and that's what hell is, sort of. Uh, and then you are reunited with God, and you have greater understanding. Uh, the idea of me being a distinct personage outside of my body, I think, is is a difficult one. Uh, that's that's my own personal. So belief you don't think about. you're physically resurrected uh, into heaven with God? No, yeah, I think I think that it's, something like a soul or energy or consciousness or something. Like yes, that. Yeah. yes, uh, a form like an Aquinas right. form, right? right. Uh, but yes, right. I, I think that. Those are actually two different things in Judaism as well. Like the, the idea of tichiyat hametim, which is the idea of resurrection of the dead. Uh, that's a different idea than what happens after you die, right? right. Tichiyat hametim is the idea that eventually a Messiah comes, that we'll all be resurrected back in our physical bodies at a certain point, which, you know, honestly, given the nature of how science is moving and, and the possibilities of cloning is, is actually less crazy than it, than it sounded probably a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah, I debunk most of the modern, you know, the singularity is coming. We're going to upload everybody into the cloud. <laughs> and this is not going to happen. 
No, definitely not. I mean, not. That's, good to, that's good to know because I just feel like the computer would be really weird. It's, it's weird <laughs> to live inside a computer. But. Or, or, or that we're living in, the, in a computer now, but there's no buffering or you know, little pixels that are going off. Every there. so often when I'm just staring <laughs> off into space, it's because but, the But while I got you here, I, I want to push you on something. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my Christian friends and people that I debate, particularly on the resurrection, you know, they have a whole series of arguments. You know, if you just followed our reason, you would accept Jesus as your Savior. And my answer to this is the great... Jewish rabbis who are smarter than you and I sitting here, they've gone through all these arguments. Why don't, why don't they accept Jesus? Why don't you accept Jesus as the Messiah? Okay, so the, the reason that I don't accept Jesus as the Messiah is because I think that a lot of the arguments in fi- So Jesus as the Messiah is a different figure than anything that exists inside Judaism. So when people say that the, the Judaism predicts the, the coming of Christ, uh, the, the change in the nature of what Christ is, what a Messiah would be, is different from Judaism to Christianity. So Judaism never posited that there would be God come to form in physical form, come to earth in physical form, and okay. then, you know, acting out in the world in, in that way. Judaism posits that God is beyond space and time. Occasionally he intervenes in history, but he doesn't take physical form. It's one of the key beliefs of Judaism, actually, is an right. incorporeal God. Uh, so that means that it's it's a the the idea is is actually foreign to Judaism of of a merged God man uh, who then is who is God in physical form but then dies and is resurrected and all this this is it's a, it's just a different idea than exists in Judaism. So you're not waiting for the Messiah to come, right? He's not coming in the. In so the, in the I'm waiting form. I'm waiting for the Messiah to come in the form of a political figure, right? So the so the, the Messiah in in Judaism is a guy who's going to come back and is going to establish peace in Israel and is going to assure that that. You know, there's a, there's sort of a happier world with a bunch of political aspects to it, as as explained by Maimonides. But he's going to die too, right? He's not going to come back, and everybody lives forever, and, and any so of that kind of stuff. He's a corporeal agent. He's just like us, right? But, right. But, and the, 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 in the Jewish view, any person could be the Messiah. Any Jew can be the Messiah in the Jewish view, right? Right. So I could be it. Who knows? But it's not, <laughs> but, I'm not. But well, it's, you're but off to a good start. But, but, there, but, <laughs> but that's that's a different yeah. view uh, than than the Christian view. So the argument typically made to Jews by Christians on this is that Jews are it, it's forecast by the Bible. Right, um, and right. that's and for Jews, we we have a whole different read when you read the Hebrew about why this may or may not be true. But Christians claim the Old Testament predicts it's going to come. So right. you disagree? Well, I, I disagree because I mean I think a lot of the a lot of these verses that are cited are actually misreads of the Hebrew. So actually, I read Hebrew. So okay. it's, so I think right. that. Uh, but that but you know again, I, I that's not to disclaim the even in the Jewish view the impact of Christianity on world history, right? Yeah, so that's a different question. So, right, We're just exactly. talking about the ontological question. Right. Is there a God out there, if, and is there a Jesus, a Messiah, in physical form? Right, so I have, I have actual beliefs that run counter to the idea of God taking physical form as a human being, because I think that that leads to a lot of weird, yeah, weird side effects. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, like to my Christian friends, you know, well, you're resurrected in heaven. Well, how old am I? I mean, physically resurrected. Yeah, 30. You know, some of them say you're 30, because that was a, you know, it's a good... <laughs> Jesus was 30, when, you know, and so... Uh, but you know, but I'm 63 now. So what happens to all the memories I have of the last 33 years? Do they go into the brain? Yeah, no, the these, are, these are definitely puzzling questions. Yeah, that, and yeah. Which is why I don't believe in that version uh, right, of a heaven. But right. it, what's interesting? We can talk about this now. I mean, what, what, what's interesting is is your version of a heaven, uh, which I want to talk about in in just a second. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Quip. The truth is, most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and forget to change our brush on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So. What makes Quip so different? Well, for starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that is a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibration to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist's recommended two minutes, guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. 
Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. Finally, everybody loves Quip. They're on Oprah's O-List. They were named one of Time's best inventions. And it's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every single day. Quip starts at just 25 bucks. And if you go to getquip.com slash benguest, because I have a guest, Right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash benguest. That's getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash benguest. Uh, trying to remember where we were. Well, do, do, you, do you believe there's a soul or something like a soul of pattern information that represents who you are that floats off the body and goes, continues on? After so I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, honestly, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I don't think anybody has a great verifiable account of, right, of, of right, that. Right. I, I have suspicions, but again, they're suspicions right, less, right. less about knowledge. What I do know, and the reason why I'm religious, is that a religious lifestyle that, that is based on certain fundamental premises, I think, makes life better for people. I think that the, the rules that are set down, yeah. uh, as currently understood at least, uh, are rules that, that are likely to lead you to leading a happier and better life than, than your pure reason alone. Because pure reason alone unleashed uh, without even those moorings in Judeo-Christianity can lead to a lot of really terrible places. Um, but I, I want to ask you about your version of heaven, because we were yeah. talking about heaven. So we can get yeah. back to that very controversial yeah, yeah, statement yeah, yeah. in just a second. But uh, your, your newest book is Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. And you, you make a pretty compelling case that, that heaven on earth is basically, to a certain extent, you enjoying yourself transcendentally. That basically, if you, you go out and look at a forest, that that may be heaven on earth or as close to it as you're going to get. Well, not just that, though. That, that really just uh, living a full, meaningful life uh, and being engaged with other people in, in your society, with your family and friends and so on, that this is it. And we should be doing this anyway, whether there is an afterlife or not, because these are good things to do. So uh, in the last chapter, I deal with, well, if so you're an atheist, if there's no afterlife, well, maybe there is. But whether there is or not, we don't live in the afterlife. We live in this life. We don't li we're not we're not living in the here and after hereafter. We're living in the here and now. So make the most of it, but not the most of it by like just plugging in the morphine drip or right. you know sucking down you know whiskey all night or <laughs> you know whatever whatever your pleasures are. It turns out that research shows that that doesn't do it for most people. It's not enough. I mean, there are some just pure hedonists that just you know get stoned all day or whatever. But most people find that unsatisfying. And so uh, there's a distinction between happiness and meaningfulness. So leading a happy life. If this is your goal, the things you do are more short-term, uh, immediate. Like it's leading uh, a pain-free life. Uh, you know, pain-free, or it's just fun, like going out mm -hmm. for dinner with uh, d dinner and drinks with family and friends. Okay, that's fun. Three hours later, it's over. It's like, okay, now what? Um, uh, but doing something that's more long-term, either in your p looking back to your past, what have I done with my life that's productive? What am I going to do in the next 20, 30 years? And th then doing things that are not fun or pleasurable now, like um, the example I use in the book is caretaking. I, care I have four parents, step-parents, and bio-parents, and I was caretaker for two of them, and this wasn't fun at all. I had, <laughs> it wasn't pleasurable driving my dad around all these hospitals and then the, the nursing homes and, and, and the pharmacies, and you know, I'd get home and I'd just exhausted. Uh, but, but I feel better as a person having done that because I kind of feel like, well, they did this for me when I was little and I would want somebody to do that for me in the cycle of life and all that. You know, and, and those kinds of things are something much simpler like working out in the morning. Like this morning I did a couple hour bike ride with the guys. It's not fun when we're going really hard 
I mean, it's kind of painful, actually. But mm -hmm. when I'm done, I'm like, I feel better about myself. I did that. And then down the line, it's a good thing to do. That's kind of like, so. And this is the concept of flow also, that when you're ensconced in work, this right. is the happiest you are, like when you, when you yeah. are one with the work that you're doing. And I, I totally agree with this, by the way. I think that, the, that happiness in life is not utterly disconnected from action in life. I think that the attempt to make a hard break between, okay, so you take a bunch of stuff that you hate during life, and you're going to hate it your whole life, and then you're going to die, and everything's going to get fixed in heaven. I actually don't think that's a very good way to teach religion, number one. Right. And number two, I don't right. think that's what religion is here that's right. to do. Right. I, think that, right. I think that religion is here to better your life here on earth. And then if you believe in an afterlife, if you believe that there is a rectification of the, of the wrongs that you experienced at the hands of others, you were, a, you were a baby who was killed by the Nazis, and now there's an afterlife where you're going to live right. on, that's a, that's a different question slightly than what religion provides to most people. And right. so when I talk about religion, uh, th this is why I found your book actually kind of interesting and inspiring, is that when I talk about religion, the stuff that I find the most interesting about religion is not the stuff that happens that's unverifiable after you're dead. It's the stuff that you're doing while you're yeah, here. Right. And, and a lot of that is tied in for a lot of people with religion. In fact, I think that the decline of religion in America has been heavily tied in, even from a secular point of view, with a, with a decline in secular happiness for a couple of reasons. One is obviously the lack of community. Right. As, as you fragment communally, there's been attempts to sort of graft on different forms of community in the absence right. of church, but those have largely failed. Uh, and, and you're seeing people atomized in a new way because of social media. That's, that's a, a real problem, whereas you see l higher levels of, of communal happiness when you feel like you're part of a group of people who yeah. actually have a common worship purpose. Yeah, so I think that, that we don't have a human need for religion. That's too big a word. We have a, a need for community. Uh, society for being part of a social group that's doing something that we feel is good and right and and and, and gives me deeper meaning not just fun 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 pleasure doing something with friends is one thing but being part of a say a religious group a bowling league or whatever in the famous example. but I'll, I'll make I'll make uh, I'll challenge you on that a little bit in okay. the sense that you say that you know being part of a community is is the entirety of it I'm not sure that a bowling league is quite the same thing as a church I think no, bowling league is probably not the right example no, but, it's, uh, but, it, yeah. but it is an interesting one because obviously Robert Putnam uses bowling alone as the as the evidence of, of lack of community in American life and I would say it's probably not going to church is the best example of lack right. of community because it's not just about being a member of a community it's about feeling like you're a member of a community with a common purpose that is right. in fact transcendental and that matters. I think that when you talk about purpose and, and meaningfulness and leaving a, mean, leaving a meaningful life, I think there are people who are capable of generating, self-generating meaning and feeling good about what it is that they do. But I think that human beings, by and large, and this is my main case for religion, actually, is I think that human beings, by and large, are really crappy at defining their own meaning. I think when human beings are left to their own devices to generate their own meaning, I'm, I'm glad that you and I agree on politics, but people very often find meaning in controlling others. They very often find meaning in making standards for others. They very fi often find meaning in making a better world, and by that they mean silencing people they disagree right, with and right, shutting them up, right. and human history is replete with this. And it's replete with religious people who did the same thing. Right. Um, so the, the idea of a transcendental purpose, I think there is a necessity for... Pe people do seek the religious, which is why religion is common to literally every culture on planet Earth. So by transcendent, if you mean beyond just ourselves, yes, I, I, I agree. And beyond our lifetimes, or, too. Or, or even, yeah, so like for me, going to Mount Wilson or obs other uh, observatories where there's huge telescopes in the big dome is just as meaningful as when I go to the, my wife's from, from Cologne, Germany, so we go to the dome there. It's this, you know, thousand-year-old magnificent, cause it, and I love going in there. I feel like this is a transcendent experience in the same way as when I go to the astronomical domes. Uh, I think it's the idea of getting us beyond ourselves in some bigger way, not, not just beyond our friends and family, but you know, our whole lifetime, lifespans and so on. Now, the religions that do that, I, I'm on board with you. Not all of them do that. 
you know, the prosperity gospel business, Joel Osteen, these people, I agree. Creflo Dollar, all the way back to Reverend Ike, you know, God wants me to be rich and, you know. Yeah, so, I don't believe that. Uh, yeah. But the, the, the ones that are going out to man the soup kitchens and so on and helping the poor, okay, that's good. Whatever it takes to move the needle a little bit to reduce, uh, increase human flourishing, reduce human suffering. And which brings us me to the, to the question of cosmic impact. So the, the difference between going and, and looking at the cosmos and saying, wow, I am a tiny speck of humanity amidst this magnificent thing yeah. that whether it came about accidentally or create, create was created, it's irrelevant to this particular moment when I'm looking at something and saying, wow, that's just incredible. But does that imbue you with a sense of purpose? Like, how do you get up every morning is what I'm asking you, right? Is some, <laughs> what, what, what motivates you to get up every morning that you're having an impact in the universe? So a religious person would say, I'm having an impact because God wants me to do X, right? God gave me a certain set of rules to live by and everything that I do matters, which is why Judaism is such a, a ritual-based religion and really takes ritual seriously. Like every time I, I drink water, before I do that, I'm supposed to bless God and recognize that God is present in my life, which is an attempt, I think, to get to that feeling of the of Yes, the, but of, of course, the chapel, the, there, right? are, there are religions that do this in a bad way. Like, Certainly. I, my purpose is to get up this morning and become a suicide bomber. Okay, right. that's, that's the wrong purpose. You've got, so how do we know? Which is why I'm not, well, yeah, <laughs> right? Which I don't course. believe their set of beliefs, yeah. Uh, and so we have to have some kind of standards. What are our standards and where do we get those? Okay, I'm back to the enlightenment or you know, where, wherever you want to start using reason to get, it, get us there. So religion can do it, but not all of them do. I that's, think it's reason and religion. And I think that's why we can have a conversation which yeah. is really so great yeah. is that I'm not coming at it and just citing Bible verses at you. I'm saying it's a merger of religious revelation and a reason that takes that and crafts it. Yeah. Right? And, that, and that it's a mix. That religion is an enzyme. It's a catalyst. And, and that catalyst is what creates the cheese of civilization, right? You put that enzyme in there, you <laughs> okay. create the cheese of civilization. Right. You don't have that enzyme in there, right. that Judeo-Christian enzyme in there, and it just remains a watery way. Yeah, you have to pick and choose, though, from, from, from the scriptures to get to get the ones that we are now using to, say, contribute to a better society and ignore the other ones. The, the, well, they know, were picked and chosen, right? I mean, that's why we're here. So that's it. Yeah, I mean, the, the passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, a lot of them are, are pretty grim. No I mean, question. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, so we, we, we do this anyway. And, you know, why do I get up in the morning? Well, I have uh, a family uh, that I you know, want to take care of. I like working. I enjoy it. I like being productive. I want to move the needle a little bit, make society a little bit better through my writings or whatever. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I, I think, I, I'm not sure I call it cosmically. I'm not sure that'd be a little egoistic to think I can, you know, change the cosmos. But you don't have or whatever, to feel like that. Everybody has to. A feel little like bit, that. yeah. You, you know, just just a little bit, yeah. Okay. Even yeah, when you say so. you have to move the needle to make things better, I mean, we yeah. have to define better. We have to make, right, re right, define right. moving the needle, and and all of this has to exist in a context where you feel like you but, are but, making a difference. But, but but you don't do it because you're expecting to get rewarded in the afterlife. No, or anything like I'm that, doing right? it out of duty, and I think there's a difference duty, between yeah, duty, duty and reward. Okay. I think yeah, that you know, religion puts a heavy focus on the idea that it doesn't matter what you want to do. Right, right, you, right, finding your bliss is a lot less important than you doing what you're supposed to do. Well, here I think we can derive uh, duty from Kant's deontology. There are certain things which really are consequential arguments, uh, ultimately. Mm -hmm. These are good rules and duties and, and things we should do. Why? Because it makes society better. And I don't think you have to step out of uh, this world to, to justify it. You can justify it through pure reason. Now, now, now people are critical of Kant to a certain extent on this, but, but we, can, we can at least get there if we bolt on some utilitarian arguments and maybe some Rawlsian arguments. I think it's and, possible to get there. I don't think it's mandatory to get there. Okay. Right? I mean, and that's, that's why I think that the, the argument from pure reason tends to fail, just because pure reason in the absence of culture ends up at the French Revolution. Well, so, here you have, right? so, so here we want to throw empiricism. Okay, what are the actual consequences and results? What can we see? So, for example, 
you know, we have 50 different states with 50 different constitutions, 50 different sets of tax laws, 50 different sets of gun control laws, and so on. We can look around and, and see the different experiments as they unfold and go, well, th this one's working, this one's not working. So, like I was just, there was a news story last night about the rates of homicides in Chicago it just went down like 50% because they implemented this police program that we're using here in LA where they put cops out on the corner because they have the data showing right. the, you know, there's more homicides and gang uh, drug things at that corner right there. Go park a squad car there and get out of the car and stand there. Okay, boom. You know, these things. So whatever works in that sense. I right. The, the only question becomes at that point, and then we get back into the big question. So what does working constitute? Because it, one, of, one of my favorite shows on TV is Man in the High Castle. Have you seen it on Amazon? It's really, oh, I haven't it, seen it, that it's yet. really fun. The, yeah. But it's fun in, in, a, in a, not in the, the pure, purest sense. I mean, it's a, it's a, the, the, the story of the show is that there is, the Nazis and the Japanese won the war and they right. divvied up the country. Right. And if you go into Nazi land, everything is beautiful. The planes work beautifully. They have these, <laughs> it's like 1960 and they have these incredibly advanced technologies. Uh, everything is extraordinarily clean, of course. Right? <laughs> everything, everything seems wonderful for the people who are alive. For the people who are dead, who are dead not so much. Right. But this is, this is one of the big problems, I think, in, in Kant's deontology is that when, when Kant says, you know, treat everybody as you would have everybody else be treated, which is basically a rewrite of the golden rule. Right. It's slightly different, right? The, the the original golden rule was actually the silver rule, which is right. don't treat anyone else right. as you would not want to be treated. Right. And once you get to treat everybody else as you'd want to be treated, well, if you feel you're a superior being, that means you get to treat inferior right. beings right. in an inferior way. Right. Uh, and so I think that we, we have to come up with some definitions that are reliant on certain premises. And that's why I keep insisting on the, on the premise. If we can accept the same common premises, then I think that we end up at the same place. And this is why I don't think atheists are, there are people who argue atheists can't be moral. I think that's utter nonsense. Uh, but I will argue that uh, a system without at least certain fundamental faith principles, right? whether call them God-based or not, but you have to take certain principles on faith in order to end up at the right place. They're not all self-provable. You mean just, just saying, I'm start, this is my moral starting point, yes. period. I can't prove it, but this is where I'm yes. starting. Yes, I think probably we do that. Yes. I mean, I'm trying to make the argument, you know, that the individual is the, you know, moral starting point, survival and flourishing of sentient beings, something like that. But they're words, you know, right. I just string together some words and I try to base it, you know, so, so we're evolved organisms. So I don't think it's a proof. I think it's just a, it's an argument. You, you, but you're calling on, well, I'm going one step further outside of space and time. But, but still, at some point, you have to tell us how you know what the deity wants. Because again, uh, you know, Muhammad Atta, when he's flying the plane into the building, he's he's just as sure as you are that, hey, the, the, the outside source told me this is the right thing to do. Yeah, and the, and the proof of that he's wrong is that he's wrong. It's wonderful to have you. I really appreciate the discussion. One of the most fun things that I get to do every week is talk with folks like Michael Shermer. Folks, go out and get his books. Heavens on Earth is his new one. And uh, his slightly older one, but just as worthy of the read, is The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Led Humanity to Our Truth, Justice, and Freedom. Michael, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks I really appreciate me. it. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer Jeremy Boring. Associate producers Mathis Glover and Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And title credits by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. 
Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 